Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, page 707, and the church Bibles of that would be of some help to you. As most of you know, we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse, as is our pattern here, and so we are on our fifth sermon in Mark's Gospel, beginning in verse 21. We're going to read... In just a second or two. While you're turning there, let me just show you a couple of things that are our welcome center. Since one of the things we're learning is Mark's gospel is a very evangelistic gospel. We have a copy of Mark's gospel at the welcome center for you to take and to give to your friends and your neighbors. And what we're going to try to do here is let the word of God do the work of God. The gospels were originally, if you would, first century tracts. And so they'd be passed out on the way that we're going to invite you to pass them out. And all this is, after an opening statement, is the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to ask you to take these to your friends and neighbors and invite them to read about Jesus for themselves. And then alongside of that is a wonderful short little presentation of the Gospel. It's called The Story. It's four pages. Uh, The words are clear. The images are great. And this, if you would, will come alongside this. And we're going to let the Gospel be... Proclaimed, and then we're going to, if you would, let the gospel be explained even further. So again, they're at the Welcome Center to my, through the door to my left, and we just invite you to take these um, and pass them around so that people who are outside of Christ can know what they're missing, frankly. Okay, verse 21. Let's hear the word of the Lord. They, that's Jesus and his ministry team, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him? News about him, Jesus, spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Amen. May God bless his word this morning as it was read. Let's bow together and let's pray for the help that we need. Father, we humble ourselves greatly before your throne of grace and power. Thank you that as our Father, you delight to give us what we need in this morning. We gladly acknowledge we are in a continual state of need. And there is no shame in this. This is our reality. This is where our safety is found. Because what we find is that when we are weak and we know it, we ask for your help and you and your mercy give it. And the help you give is far better than anything we could gather in ourselves and on our own. Therefore, please, Father, as your word is preached and listened to, give us clarity of thought, brevity of expression, humility of heart, and the proper sense that we are now, by your Spirit, under the instruction of you, the living God, that you are teaching us as your word is preached. And in that, Father, please, let it do what it must. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Well, 
In our studies in Mark's gospel, we have learned, if your Bible's open, you'll see this, verse 15, what the message of Jesus is, the exact message. Verse 15, the time has come. All the expectations of the Old Testament is fulfilled in this person, Christ. The kingdom is near. The rule of God over the hearts and minds and lives of people is being established. And the evidence of that rule is lives are being changed. And the signs of that rule, that is Jesus' ministry unfolds and he confronts things like he confronts in this chapter that we read, um, Jesus has total victory. The time has come. The kingdom is near. Repent. Turn away from yourself and your rebellion and believe the good news of the gospel. That's the message. We then said that the mission of Jesus was to take that message forward and to see his message established in the lives of his people. We then learned very quickly that his mission was not going to be a one-man mission because what we discovered was that, you'll see this around verse 17, that Jesus, before he, he embarks on his earthly mi- mission, gathers a team. And as Jesus gathers his team, we found out two things. And they were pretty straightforward. The first thing we noticed last time is that when Jesus picks the place and Jesus picks the people to begin his ministry, the place and the people in the eyes of the world would seem far below average, right? So in other words, the place that Jesus starts at um, in the sea of, near the Sea of Galilee is, it was pretty much a hack town. And when Jesus picks out his people, he's not searching for the A-team. Right? It was just a bunch of regular guys holding out a job as fishermen. And so we learn that Jesus goes to an unlikely place. He moves in a very unlikely way. He calls a group of unlikely people. And I love saying this, so that the whole likelihood of his ministry causes people to say, as they look at the place and they look at the people, they could never do that. They, they could never do that. There must be someone behind the scenes. And we would say, of course there is. Of course there is, because Paul writes to the Corinthians, we have this treasure, this gospel treasure uh, in old clay pots. This is us to show that the all-surpassing power does not come from us, but it comes from God. In fact, later on, Paul will say 2 Corinthians 4, 7, who is equal to such a task, right? Paul looks at himself, even though he's an apostle, and looks in the mirror square, and he goes, are you kidding me? Who is equal to such a message to take and a mission to take it with? And, you know, we need to remind ourselves, whatever moment that we would say to ourselves, well, okay, it's all Jesus, but it is just a little bit of me. At that moment, the whole thing is ruined. That's the first thing then we notice. The place and the people and the estimation of the world was far below average to our encouragement. Second thing we noticed, that to follow Jesus, it does come with a decision and it does come with a cost. Consequently, as the call of Christ came to them, when Jesus said, verse 15, repent and believe the good news, a person would know if they're actually living under the authority of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether their allegiance is split or non-existent. Indeed, when a person then, just like now, would know that they actually made a decision they would understand that Jesus would begin to rule over every corner of their existence, every corner of their life. So right off the bat, it falls to me to ask the question, have you you yourself made that decision? Have you made that decision? Because, loved ones, either Jesus rules and reigns in every corner of our life, or he doesn't. If he doesn't, we do, or someone else does, 
or something else does. I mean, it is as clear and unmistakable as that. And if we have bowed our knee to the message, then it stands to reason, since Jesus is king, we have bowed our knee to his mission. Because again, the king has spoken. This is how it works, right? The king has spoken. We are his subjects. We fall in line behind the king and do as he does and say as he wills. Verse 17, you can't miss it. Come follow me. Remember our encouragement, I will make. This is the promise. I will construct in you, follower of Jesus, the ability to be fishers of the whole human race. That's a promise. So you see, loved ones, the repentant person, this is how it goes. The repentant person is the one who has been so humbled by their sin that they recognize that they're helpless in it. And so they have turned to, this is repentance, they've turned to Jesus to receive his mercy and to receive his forgiveness, which he accomplished on the cross. Then, when a person receives the message of God's kindness and love through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Holy Spirit takes that message, the gospel, and remember, this is not a moral message. This is the gospel. And he takes the gospel to transform our hearts, enabling us, verse 17, to follow Jesus. And what this does is, it changes then what would be like kind of a religious duty. It's like, oh, okay, here we go. I've got to talk to somebody about Jesus. I'm going to work myself up. Here I go. Get ready. This is like me trying to jump into a cold lake, right? It's like, oh, man, I don't want to do it. It's not like that. It's completely different. It's instead of, I have to talk to somebody about Jesus, now because of the work of the Spirit, oh, no, no, I get to talk to someone about Jesus. And okay, I, met, I might be met with opposition, uh, Jesus said. I might be met with mockery. I might have a question come to me that I can't answer. Or they might say, oh, you're one of those. But it's okay because Jesus was square with me up front. He told me things like that might happen. And he told me, carry the cross, carry my cross, and lose my life for the gospel's sake, Mark 8. Follow him, and he'll make us fishers of men and women, and young people. And by golly, I would like to get a catch. Right? I'd like to get a catch for Jesus, my Savior, my King, my friend. Loved ones, ask a loving grandparent about their grandchild. They won't be able to stop talking about it. It's great. I can't wait if I'm allowed that privilege. Ask a sportsman, ask a hunter about their endeavors. You might as well grab a Coke and a smile and sit down because it's going to be a while, right? It can be the same with us about our Savior. Listen to your Bible, Acts chapter 4, verse 20. As for us, this is the apostles, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. Now, I realize I have been purposely repetitive about this, maybe to a fault. But I have been this way only because we acknowledge then, in the time of Jesus, just like now, the message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and God's means in it all can get so muddled up. And since we are prone to wonder, we've got to guard ourselves and we're going to remind ourselves of this truth. So this week, my son, whom... I miss, and I love. We were talking, and he said, Dad, you need to listen to this podcast. And the podcast was from a writer that we both really, really like. So I listened to the podcast. 
On the podcast, I learned of this paradox. I'd never known it before, but I thought it would be helpful. It's called the ship of Theseus paradox. Okay, what is that? Well, this is what it is. If a ship sets sail from point A to point B, we'll say port A to port B, and while the ship is sailing, one piece of that ship is taken off to be replaced by an entirely different piece, and that happens piece by piece until the whole ship has been replaced with brand new material, the question is, is that ship the same ship which left port and arrived at the new port? Is it the same ship? Okay, so most say no. And I would say no. And I tell you this because it helps my illustration. This is what I mean. Over the years, at least in the West, the message of Christ and the mission of Christ and his means, it might be like the ship of, of Theseus. And some have been changing it plank by plank over time until what we have now is a boat. But it's not the gospel boat. It's not the boat which left port in the first century. And therefore, by and large, in many places, is nothing near in terms of the message and certainly the mission and certainly the means that God uses and is recorded for us here in Mark's gospel. Now, even as I say that, I go right to the pastoral epistles. This is Paul writing to a pastor, Timothy, and this is what he says. Okay, Timothy, pastor, 2 Timothy 1.14, guard the gospel which was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Paul, why? Answer, 2 Timothy 4, 3. Because the time's going to come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. The Greek word is they're not going to hold up sound doctrine and they're not going to hold on to sound doctrine. They're not going to hold on to the gospel. Instead, Paul says, to suit their own desire, their own passions, their own urges, they will gather a large number of teachers to say what they want to hear. In other words, okay, because there's so many people saying it, it must be right. Paul's like, no, it's wrong. Turning away from the truth to fairy tales. And then he tells Timothy, but you, Timothy, you keep your head in all situations and do the work of what? Of an evangelist. Timothy, pastor, do the work of the evangelist. Okay, Timothy, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, your Bible is open. There's your message. Okay, Timothy, Mark chapter 1, verse 17, if your Bible is open, there's your mission. There's your mission. Now, you're sensible people. You have to read your Bibles, think things through, judge for yourselves, and to see if what I'm saying is true. Okay. Now, with all that way of background, we come to verse 21 and following, and we find Jesus and his team arriving at the lakeside town of Capernaum on the Sabbath. Okay, so Capernaum is, this, is the, the northwest section of the Sea of Galilee, and apparently it was a large enough town to have uh, a detachment of Roman soldiers. We know that from Mark 5. And it was a large enough town to have a customs post. And the reason why we know that is because around Mark chapter 2, Jesus is going to meet Levi, the tax collector, who served at that customs post. And Capernaum, by the way, was the home of Andrew and Simon, Jesus' uh, first two, if you would, followers. And what's going to be taking place here from verse 21 all the way to verse 39, which is why this is a part one and part two sermon, is essentially a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. 24 hours, verses 22 to 39. So, I found out this morning in the first service, we're only going to have time to go through one point. So, I'll just tell you what that point is. It's confrontation. 
Because what's going to happen here, there is going to be a significant confrontation between Jesus and the powers of hell. Verse 21, they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. So we know then that Jesus went to the synagogue because it was his pattern to go to the synagogue. Well, why was that the case? Well, first of all, he was a Jewish male. And the expectation of a Jewish male at that time is that they would go to the temple and they would go to the synagogue. In fact, Luke tells us in his gospel of Jesus, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his pattern. I think some translations say as was his custom. In other words, if someone was looking for Jesus on the Sabbath and they said, well, where can I find them? The word on the street would be pretty easy. Oh, yeah, he's going to be at the synagogue. In fact, wait out there. When the people start coming out, you're going to run right into Jesus. Why is that the case? Well, it's the case because that was the decision that Jesus made each and every Sabbath. So it wasn't an emotional decision, right? He wasn't looking for a feeling to get him into the synagogue and to worship God. If that was the case, if he was looking for a feeling, then I can guarantee you Jesus' attendance record would be real patchy and it wouldn't be his pattern. Just as it would for any of us, if we decide to attend worship on the strength of our emotion rather than the strength of our decision. If it's emotion, our attendance will always be patchy, right? We get up and like, I don't know how you wake up in the morning, but I don't wake up going hallelujah. I kind of go like, <laughs> and, then, and then I'll say hallelujah. But anyway, if it's just an emotional thing, then I promise you our attendance will be patchy. But if you determine that what you do as you think things through will matter for all eternity because God matters, then your emotions will be subservient to your decisions. And that's the way we would like to live. So Jesus thinks things through in light of who he is, in light of who God is, and what the mission was. He couldn't dream, apparently, of a Sabbath where he would not be in the company of God's people, singing God's praise, praying together with God's people, acknowledging God's care over his life, and then hearing God's word explained, honoring God, if you would, on his day. Because it was his pattern. And apparently during a synagogue service is the potential for a rabbi to be there. And oftentimes if a rabbi was there, they would ask him to teach exactly what happens here in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 and following. And as soon as Jesus begins to teach, they recognize that this is not something they were used to. Now what they were used to was the lessons of the teachers of the law. You'll see that in verse 22. The grammatos is the Greek word. And they were the ones who would give the explanation of the Old Testament. They'd preach out of the Old Testament and they'd preach the law. And their modus operandi was to quote from various rabbis, which then served as the basis of the authority of what they were saying. So they would quote a very, very important rabbi. And they would say, since he says it, then it must be true. But now Jesus comes and his teaching, if you would, is self-possessed. In other words, Jesus is preaching himself. And of course, he should have been preaching himself because the very scriptures, the Old Testament, which he taught from, were the very scriptures which pointed to him. So I don't want you to think this. I don't want you to think, well, the teachers of the law were really, really boring. And Jesus comes in and he's really, really exciting. And then that just turned the whole thing around. And the people loved it. It's nothing like that at all. They might have been boring. Who knows? But that's not what was happening here. What was happening here is finally Jesus is making proper use of the Old Testament and proper use of the law. And he's preaching himself to them. He's preaching the gospel to them. 
out of the Old Testament. Mark, or excuse me, Luke's gospel says when Jesus had the section in the synagogue where he would read the scripture, Jesus said, today these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what's said about the person in there, I'm the person, Jesus said. I'm the person. So one could get this sense pretty easily that when the teachers of the law would teach, it was always, okay, here's the law, do good, do good, do this, do good, and here's how. And they added techniques to God's word, and they added legislation to the intent of God's law, and they would say, okay, when you get done, you come back next Sabbath, and we're going to do the whole thing all over again. Here's what you need to do, here's what you need to do, here's how you do it. And they would quote from, you know, a few well-respected rabbis that kind of underpin uh, their conclusions. And thus, in doing that, they would go way beyond the main and plain use of the law, the main and plain use of the Old Testament, and then they distorted God's intent for the law. And loved ones, when the law is preached without Christ, without the gospel, it kills. It kills. Morality preached. Do good, do good, Right? Apart from the cross, it kills. I mean, it will demoralize any honest person as they see the holy standard and go, I can't do that. Unless you're like a Pharisee and you pretend like, oh no, I can do that. I did it last week three times. And you know what? I'm going to do it again this week four times. And the week after, I plan on doing it even better. See, that's the Pharisee, which is why Jesus comes on the scene and he says, okay, like tax collectors and prostitutes, they're going to get into the kingdom of heaven before you, Pharisee, religious leader. Why? Because the prostitute and the tax collector, they've been convinced that they're sinners. And on their best day, they will not beyond, go beyond the need of God's grace. They need grace. They understand it, and they cry out to Jesus. You remember and during the Kids in the Kingdom, when it was a good one, we did the thing, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, but gives me wings. That's the message of Jesus. Here's another one. A rigid matter was the law. Do good, do good. Demanding brick, denying straw. But when the gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly. And it gives me wings. And you know, I would be doing a disservice to you to say how the teachers of the law taught in their day is not so far from what takes place in some settings in our day. In which, by and large, the message is, you know, go, go, Johnny, go, 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 Johnny, go, Johnny, be good. Next Sunday, go, go, Johnny, go, go, Johnny, be good. And here's how. Got some techniques for you. Next Sunday, go, go, Johnny, go. You're a terrible husband. You're a worse father. How much can a human take of that? All law. No gospel. Listen. Johnny should be good, right? There should be a few, Johnny, you snap out of it and you be what you are sermons. There should be that. But only through the gospel alone. Because, and I want you to listen carefully, please. Christian maturity is a Christian who, would, who in following Jesus, they do not have a preoccupation with themselves and all they're doing right or wrong. But they have a preoccupation with Jesus and with others. And therein they fish for men and women. 
They're, all, they're in with God's enabling. They're able to take the message and embrace it. And they're able to take the mission and finally embrace it. And they take it as a way of life to the world. Because they love Jesus. Because they've been transformed by Jesus. And in their worship of Jesus, describing the worth of Jesus because he's king. It's getting harder and harder for them not to go out in the streets and to fish for men and women and young people. And loved ones, that goes way beyond just being good. I mean, those of us who have been in the faith a long time, we know how easy it is to be good on the outside and smile and love you. And and then our hearts are like, and only Jesus knows our hearts ultimately. Christian maturity is a work of God's grace built through the exposition, the proclamation of the person and worth and, and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And loved ones, that is what is taking place here in Mark's gospel. That is the difference between the teachers of the law and the Lord Jesus Christ gospel-driven instruction. Now, to underpin this a little bit further because it's important, if, if your Bible's open, you'll see the word amazed in verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching. The Greek word there is ekplesio. And it can be translated, they were overwhelmed by his teaching. They were disturbed, thunderstruck, uh, with either panic or shock. That's the first word. The second word in the Greek translated authority. Again, verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. It literally means out of his being. In other words, when Jesus spoke, his substance, his words came out of him. Question, who is Jesus? He's the living word. So what we have here is they were acknowledging that this was a divine, if you would, confrontation between the living word and the people listening. So this was direct revelation from the second person of the Trinity to these people, just like in the Old Testament when the prophets would come and they would say, thus saith the Lord, and it would be so overwhelming to the people. That is what is happening here. That is why these people are overwhelmed. That is why they are amazed. They're thunderstruck, uh, either sheer panic and anxiety. Now, we have to understand this. Before, when they would listen to the teachers of the law, For years, right? We're talking decades and decades. It was always do, 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 and here's how, how. And they would add a little additives to God's intent of the law. And they would just keep piling up, piling up, piling up, right? Sabbath day, you can only go this far. Oh, wait a minute, you can go this far, and you go this far, and you have to take a rope, and all that silly stuff that some of you know. Now, well, let me just say this. It was all do, 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 and how, how, how. And I guarantee you it wasn't a whole lot of repent, repent, repent. And certainly no gospel hope at all. However, even though Jesus and these teachers, they drank from the same well and they're teaching, right? They're both teaching from the Old Testament. When Jesus taught it, he taught from that which was God's original intent. Question, what was God's original intent? It was the Evangelion, the good news, the gospel. So his listeners had to come to grips with the fact that the message, and listen carefully, the message they had been hearing for years from these teachers was not God's message. 
And they had to come to grips with the fact that they could never, ever be good enough for God. And that God would have to send a substitute, a Messiah. Now stay with me. And the offense of the gospel them to them apparently overwhelmed them. That's verse 22. So they weren't like in awe of Jesus, like, oh, he's so wonderful. They're like, wait a minute, what is he saying? Because I've never heard that. And he's saying it from the same book that we hear from. And it shocked them. Okay, so their old message was, okay, Messiah's going to come and he's going to be a conquering king. And he's going to make life on earth for the Jewish people super terrific. It's going to be kind of like a better homes and gardens way of life. But a suffering savior who will lose his life and beckon his followers to do the same, which is what Jesus was preaching. They didn't want to hear that. You know, I was thinking today that there was, there was a man that I was I'm friends with. But early on in my ministry, he had, for 23 years, had a to- totally wrong view of the gospel. And whenever we began to preach through Romans, the book of Romans, verse by verse, every Tuesday, he was in my office. I don't agree with that. Week by week, I don't agree with that. I mean, like, it was just me. And I, so I wasn't like going, oh, yeah, I was like buckling under the weight of it all. And finally, around Romans 6, the lights came on. And he got it. 23 years of arm right. All of a sudden, in like what? I don't know, 17 sermons? Oh no, I've been wrong. And it was very, very humbling for him. He was a businessman, a smart, lovely man. But it was very, very humbling for him to say for like two decades and three years, I was all wrong. And I thought I, thought I was right. Okay. So all that's happening. They're hearing the gospel for the first time ever. They're freaking out, essentially. And you think that would be enough, right? But look at your Bible. Just then, verse 23. Here we go. <laughs> really? <laughs> a demon-possessed man just begins to cry out. A man with an evil spirit. Okay. So one of the questions we should ask ourselves is, okay, is Mark trying to give his readers the impression that this man who was described as possessed, was he a regular attendee? I mean, do you understand this? Is it possible that this guy could have listened to the teachers of the law week by week? Is it possible that he could participate in the congregational singing in the synagogue? Was it possible that he could have done the Shema, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, if he could say that uh, week by week and not be moved at all and nothing would disturb him? Is that possible? Until Jesus comes and gives the gospel? Now, we can't say for sure that, you know, we know for sure that he was a usual part of the group, but it remains a possibility. So apparently it's possible for this person to be a regular attendee and they, he could just sit through it all, Sabbath by Sabbath, and just let all of it wash all over him. I mean, if Judas could be in the 12, then apparently a person held by an evil spirit could be in the synagogue. Now, I hope that never happens here. I hope it never happens where a pe- person comes in unconverted and leaves unconverted. I hope that never happens here. Still, whatever was happening here, we do know, as the gospel was preached, that this man's true life was just being peeled back and exposed, and to the powers of evil, the gospel was like a dagger to their heart. And he just blows up and interrupts the whole thing. Now, as I said, in 20 years of pastoral ministry, I had had this thing happen to me twice both in Tennessee. 
One was like really, really loud and one was really sinister. The first time I was in the middle behind the box preaching about halfway through the sermon, this guy like six feet everything and 300 everything, he just yells and starts screaming and tells me to shut up. Thank God he stayed in his seat. (laughs) And you know, as I think about that, nobody tried to stop him. What does that say about me? But anyway, he stopped and he left. But, but the whole thing was like <gasps> electricity through the body. The minor one was, I was preaching just like this, and there was actually a lady sitting in the front row. And quietly, she was mocking the gospel. And so I was preaching the gospel, and she was sitting there, and I could just see her. And she was like mocking me, and I'm the only one that could hear her. And she was just mocking, mocking the message. Okay, on each occasion, I think... Well, on the first occasion, I know it was mental illness. The second occasion, I I know it was mental illness. But here, it's demon possession. So we have to let the Bible be the Bible. Now we're going to close, and this is what we need to know. It is impossible for the, the... unbounded clarity and the authority of God in the gospel not to confront the hidden dimensions of evil and somehow expose them. Because there is this massive difference between a holy God and his goodness and between the powers of hell and all their wickedness. There's, a, there's no common ground whatsoever between what Jesus has said and what, he done and who he, what he's done and who he is and this uh, demon-filled man. Now, if you look at verse 23, verse 26, verse 27, you're going to notice something. It's a repetitive phrase. Evil spirit. Akatharto is the Greek word. Verse 26, the evil spirit shook the man violently. Verse 27, he even gives orders, speaking of Jesus, to evil spirits. So this is what Mark is doing. Evil, evil, evil. Verses, verse 24, who are you? The Holy One of God. So the confrontation is between the absolute purity and authority and the goodness of God manifested in Jesus and in the gospel versus the powers of darkness whom Jesus already confronted when he uh, walked through that wilderness in his temptation. He comes out of the temptation victorious, but it would be absolutely ridiculous to think that this holy King Jesus could move about and not on some occasions as he preaches the gospel, be confronted with the powers of hell. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. The the confrontation between light and darkness, between God and the devil, that's a real confrontation. And I say that because this. The idea of kind of like a smooth Christian life, which is always being offered to us incessantly, is a flat-out lie. Not if we're engaged and we're fishing for all kinds of people. It is incongruous to think that a quiet life, smooth, unruffled, with with some fun here and there, and then we die, that's the ideal life for the follower of Christ. That's the blessed life. It can't be. Not when our Savior walks the path that He walks and He beckons us to walk the same way. It's impossible. It's impossible. Now, moral life, pretty easy in America. But a fisher of men and women life, that takes divine power. 
And that is why when the truth of Jesus Christ confronts the world, usually two things happen. Number one, people will bow and believe. Or number two, the powers of hell, which Ephesians 2 says is at work in those who are disobedient. It'll be exposed and they'll try to resist. And I say resist because ultimately the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross is never in question, though there will still be those confrontations. Now I'm going to leave you with a verse and then we're going to be done. It's 1 John 3, 8. And this is what it says. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Right? The one who frames our life in death and deceit and lies of the devil. Source. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. However, listen carefully. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason why Christ appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. Question. How does Jesus destroy the works of the devil? Answer. Through his victory on the cross and through chapter 1, verse 15, the message of the cross, chapter 1, verse 17, and the mission to take that message to the world. And guess what, loved ones? If you're in Christ this morning, we have been given the absolute privilege to take the message and go out and do the mission. And on one level can't be any easier to understand. Incredibly hard to do, and we need divine power to do it. But now we know, without absolute certainty, what the message is, what the mission is, the means, and to know that, yeah, we are going to have these confrontations. They're just part of being human in a broken world that is not forever. Thank you for your attention. I'm going to be up here. If you have a question or two, let's pray together, please. Father, the the brokenness of society, the brokenness of our own lives, it would discourage us. It would discourage our hearts with fear and intrepidation or maybe for some just despondency. But we thank you, Father, for the great anticipation of the better heavenly country which is coming, and whose maker and builder is you, the living God. And so we would pray for Jesus' sake that we be given the grace to be messengers on mission until our last breath. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be on all who believe, both this morning and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.